Hi, and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. Hello and welcome to this episode on sin and virtue. So in past episodes, we've been talking about the kind of broad principles and ideas of things like freedom and morality. And now in this episode, we're going to get a bit more specific and we're going to talk about sin. So what exactly is a sin? What's the difference between a mortal sin and a venial sin? And then on the flip side, what is a virtue and what does it mean to be a virtuous person? But before we get too far into that, I first want to share with you a resource that I have been making use of a lot in this, like these episodes on morality. And it's a website called Ethics Finder. This is not an ad, by the way. No one has asked me to say this. I just think that this is a fantastic resource. So Ethics Finder is like Google. It's a search engine, but it only contains materials on ethical and moral questions. So like end of life issues like abortion and euthanasia or political questions or things like human rights, etc. And all of the materials on the website have been like hand chosen specifically from a Catholic perspective. But that's not to say that it's all explicitly Catholic as well. Like a lot of it uses really secular language. So it's a really great place to find resources if you want to share something with your friend or help them to understand an issue or you're giving like a a talk or a class or something. So Ethics Finder, I'll put a, a link to it in the show notes for people to use. Okay, now let's talk about virtue and sin. Okay, so the first thing I want to do is a kind of visualization, right, to give us a bit of an overview of sin and virtue and how they relate to each other. So I want you to imagine a spectrum, right? And we will label this spectrum morality. And on the far left-hand side of the spectrum, we have total depravity, like the worst possible things that you could do. And then on the far right-hand side of the spectrum, we have total perfection. So the best, most virtuous things that you could do. And then right smack bang in the middle of the spectrum, we have a dividing line. And that dividing line is called the moral law. Okay, so this is the spectrum of morality. Every act that we commit that has some kind of moral dimension to it falls somewhere along this spectrum. Everything on the left hand side of that dividing line is the realm of sin. So as soon as we disobey the moral law, we are in the realm of sin. And then sin can be more or less grave, depending on how far along the spectrum we go. And then on the right-hand side of that line is the realm of virtue. So when we obey the moral law, we are doing virtuous acts. So that's how sin and virtue relate to each other. They're kind of like flip sides of a coin. And they both relate to whether or not we follow the moral law. Now, what is the moral law? How do I know if I'm committing a sin or doing a virtuous act? Well, this is something that G.K. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis both talk about, and we kind of covered it in early episodes, right? This idea that the natural law, the moral law, is kind of inscribed on the human heart. Like we kind of instinctively know when things are right or wrong. However, which we've also talked about in the episode on conscience, our understanding of right or wrong can become a bit desensitized or or confused. So it's good for us to also have a specific framework for morality. And that framework is outlined in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments basically outline the natural law. 
And then in the New Testament, in Matthew 22, Jesus summarizes those Ten Commandments in the one golden rule, which is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So that really is what the moral law comes down to. We are called to love God and to love our neighbor and ourselves. But what does that mean? What does it mean to love God and love others? St. Thomas Aquinas says that to love someone is to will the good of the other. So loving others means wanting what is best for them. I mean, as Christians, we know that God is the fullness of all goodness. He is literally the best. So that's what ultimately it means to love ourselves and to love others is to draw closer to God and to bring others closer to God. And actually, it can be really helpful and even important for us to think of sin in these terms, in terms of drawing closer or further away from God, because we need to remember that sin is not just a matter of like doing the right thing and following the rules. I was talking to a priest about this recently. He was saying that like as Catholics, we have this idea of sin, not just like disobeying the moral law. We call it sin because we're talking about something relational and personal. We're talking about my personal relationship with God. When I commit a sin, It's an offense against God because it hurts him. He loves us so much. And when we pull away from him, we hurt him, right? It's personal. This is something that St. Alphonsus of Liguri writes about. He says, he who does not acquire the love of God will scarcely persevere in the grace of God, for it is very difficult to renounce sin merely through fear of chastisement. So in other words, if we are only thinking in terms of like, I have to do the right thing, otherwise I'm going to go to hell, then we're putting ourselves in a very difficult position because it is very hard to persist in doing the right thing if we're only acting under the kind of fear of punishment. That is such a kind of oppressive, stressful state to be in that you can't stay in it for too long. You eventually do a table flip and kind of nup out and just do whatever you want. Okay, so sin is when we hurt God and pull away from him. And we can do that in many different ways. We can do it in our deeds and in our words. And that's kind of the most obvious example of sin because it's the most visible. But we can also do it in our thoughts and internal dispositions. And sometimes those kind of interior sins that are less visible, they can be just as bad as the ones that are externally visible. So sometimes we can sort of fall into thinking, oh, well, at least I was only thinking horrible things about that person. I didn't say them out loud. Or at least I was only imagining cheating on my spouse. I didn't actually do it. And okay, maybe it would be worse to actively cheat on your spouse, but that doesn't mean that it's okay to like internally be fostering that desire and kind of indulging in those thoughts, even if you're not externally acting on it. The catechism says that the root of sin is in the heart of man. So really what matters the most is what's actually going on in my heart, regardless of what the world kind of sees on the outside. One of the other ways that I can sin is by omission. So not doing something that I should be doing. And this is another one that sometimes we can fall into where we sort of think, oh yeah, I'm a pretty good person. Like I I don't really commit any major sins. I kind of just like I'm chugging through life being, you know, fairly good. But actually maybe there are plenty of things that we actually should be doing that we're neglecting. And those can be sins as well. So we think of the parable of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus talks about all of these people who just walk past that guy who's been beaten up and he's lying on the side of the road. 
Sometimes that can be us. Sometimes we're walking right past the people who need us the most. And of course, that doesn't mean that, you know, I have to give 10 bucks to every, you know, person who's sleeping rough that I ever encounter. Otherwise, I'm committing sin. But it does mean that we should be doing something for the poor, for the needy, for the lonely. You know, maybe it's a member of my family or friends or strangers that I feel God is calling me to help. Or maybe it's not even a matter of helping people. Maybe it's that I see something happening that I know is wrong and I don't do anything about it or I cover up for the person who did the wrong thing or, you know, I assist someone to do something wrong. In all of these situations, these can be offenses against God. Now, we're going to look at some specific examples of sins when we go over the Ten Commandments, but a good place to start in this episode is with what we call the seven capital sins. And these capital sins are basically the kind of foundational sins that pretty much sit under or drive all of the things that we might do that are wrong. Okay, so these are pride, avarice, or another word for that is greed, envy, wrath or anger, lust, gluttony and sloth or laziness. So why should we care about these seven capital sins? Like, why are they so important? Well, because they are so foundational and they sit under all of the other sins that we commit, it can be really helpful for us to be aware of them so that we can understand more deeply why we do the wrong thing and then sort of overcome those sins that we're in the habit of committing. So for instance, say that I'm in the habit of telling lies in social situations and I want to stop doing that. I can take that to my prayer and maybe I realize that the reason why I'm lying all the time is actually on a deeper level, it's coming from a place of pride. Like I want people to see me in a certain way. So understanding the capital sins can be a really useful tool for us when we're trying to overcome sin. Now let's return to our spectrum of morality. So if you remember, we said that sin can be more or less serious. So the church teaches that we can commit what we call venial sins or mortal sins. So a venial sin is when I do something that is morally wrong, but I'm still in the state of grace. And a mortal sin is when I do something that is so serious that it actually cuts me off from friendship with God. It cuts off my access to sanctifying grace. And this makes total sense, right? Like this is the logic that applies to all of my relationships, not just my relationship with God. Like there are situations where I might do something to my friend that is hurtful. So say I, you know, borrow her t-shirt and I never give it back, or I'm annoyed at her. So I go and gossip about her to another friend. Now those things aren't nice and they are hurtful to my friend, but they're probably not friendship ending acts. But say that, you know, instead of stealing my friend's t-shirt, I was actually siphoning money out of her savings account that she was using to save for a deposit for a house. And I used it to pay for a holiday for myself in Bali. (laughs) Okay. That's friendship ending. That's like friendship terminated. If I did that or say that, you know, instead of just going off and having a vent about my friend to another friend, I actually went on like national television and was like, um, FYI, everyone, my friend is really annoying. Okay. The friendship would probably be over if I did something that big. So it's the same with God. Okay. There are ways that we can hurt him. And then there are ways that we can end the friendship. And of course, of course, we can always re-enter that friendship with God. If we go to confession, he's always there with his mercy, ready to receive us back. But also we want to avoid doing the things that are like friendship ending bad. Now, how do I know when I've done something that bad? Well, again, you know, to some extent we can go to our consciences like that in the same way that I kind of know when I've done something to my mom, that's so horrible that it might threaten my friendship with her. There are some things like if I commit a murder or if I commit adultery or whatever, those are pretty clearly big sins that are going to really, really fundamentally affect my relationship with God. 
But there can also be instances where we become desensitized to certain sins and we forget that they can actually be really serious. So it's good for us to bear in mind that really, I mean, most sins, if we push them to their furthest end, they can be serious friendship ending mortal sins. So take something like drinking alcohol, for instance, as a human being, my dignity lies in the fact that I have an intellect and a will. That is what makes me capable of following the moral law. So if I drink slightly too much alcohol, like I get a little bit tipsy, then that's not good because I'm actually compromising my, my will and my intellect. So that can be a venial sin. But if I keep pushing that further and I get to the point where I'm totally drunk and I actually have lost control of my intellect and my will, then that's a serious sin because I'm violating my own human dignity. Or as another example, take something like anger, right? Like if I get a little bit frustrated or angry with someone and I speak to them in a way that isn't very nice, then that's a venial sin, right? But if I push that to the point where I'm so angry that I actually want to kill that person, then that's a serious sin because in that moment, I'm actually fundamentally violating that one command to love others as I love myself. And Christ himself says this, right? In Matthew chapter five, he says, I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you say you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So he's there. He's talking about that kind of anger that is so you know fundamentally contrary to the command to love others that it actually cuts us off from that friendship with God. Now, some of you might be hearing this and sort of thinking, oh, like, I didn't know that getting drunk was a serious sin or, you know, I've been really angry with people before. What if I've committed a mortal sin and I'm not in a state of grace? Okay, calm your farm, cool your boots. <laughs> so the church reminds us that in order for us to actually commit a mortal sin and to be liable for that sin, three things are necessary. First of all, it has to be grave matter. So it has to be something serious. But on top of that, we also need two other things. We need full knowledge and full consent. So if you do something wrong and you've got no idea that it's a sin or you're not fully in control for whatever reason, then you're not going to be held fully accountable. Now, probably the best thing to do is just to go to confession anyway, just to get it off your conscience so that you're not sort of carrying it around or worrying and you don't get scrupulous about it. But also like we, we shouldn't freak out if we don't have full knowledge and full consent of something, then God is not going to hold us accountable in the same way as someone who did know what they were doing. This is actually something that my mum used to say to us when we were kids. Like if we dropped something or we had some sort of accident and, you know, we felt really bad that we'd done the wrong thing. And I'd be like crying to my mom, like, I'm so sorry, mom, I can't believe I did the wrong thing. And mum would be like, Caitlin, what do you need to commit a sin? And I'd be like, full knowledge and full consent. She'd be like, great. Did you have full knowledge and full consent? And I'd be like, no. She's like, yeah, it's okay then. It was an accident. Just try again next time. No worries. So knowing that it's only mortal sin that cuts us off from friendship with God, one really easy thing to fall into is the kind of like, the sense of, oh, well, the main thing is just to avoid committing mortal sins. Like, so long as I do that, then everything else is kind of play on. Like, little sins, venial sins, like not ideal, but also like kind of fine. The main thing, don't commit a mortal sin. Well, that is not the most helpful attitude for us to have for a couple of reasons. First of all, because coming back to this idea that sin is about a personal relationship with God. It's not like, what is the most that I can get away with without going to hell? Like that's how I treated my um, undergraduate degree at uni. It was like, what are the, what's the least number of classes that I can go to and still pass the course? And of course, funnily enough, I learned nothing during my undergraduate degree because I never went to class. <laughs> 
So we can't treat our moral life in the same way. This isn't just a matter of like, what's the least that I can do and still get into heaven. If we love God, then we don't want to hurt him even in little ways. If we think about like the relationship between spouses, imagine if there was, you know, a husband thinking of his wife and thinking, oh, well, so long as I don't cheat on her or abuse her, then it's okay if I lie to her all the time and I'm insincere and I'm cold and distant and, you know, I'm not doing anything particularly nice for her, just provided that I don't do anything super terrible. Okay. That's not a very healthy way to approach a loving relationship. But the other thing to bear in mind is that sin begets sin. The more we commit even little sins, the easier it gets for us to commit more sins. And when we continue to commit venial sins, two things can happen. The first is that we develop bad habits, what we call vices. So when I've got a vice, it means that, you know, it's not just that I tell the occasional lie, it's that I'm actually a bit of a liar, or it's not that I just gossiped that one time, it's that I'm a gossip. Okay, so those neural pathways can become so deeply carved into us that actually it becomes a habit. And we all know how hard a bad habit is to get out of. But the other thing is that the more I commit little sins, the easier it becomes for me to commit bigger sins. Precisely because we start to become desensitized, we get used to it, and then we can sort of like slide down a slippery slope. And before we realize it, we're committing bigger and bigger sins. So even venial sin we should be avoiding. And actually, to be honest, merely avoiding sin is like keeping our head above water, just making sure we don't drown. What we actually should be aiming at is like getting out of the water altogether, right? Like trying to become virtuous people, trying to become saints. So this is where we head into the second half of that spectrum of morality, the zone of virtue. That's where we want to be. So virtue, the opposite of vice, is, according to the Catechism, point 1803, a habitual and firm disposition to do the good. So in other words, a virtue is a good habit. Now, virtues can be divided into two categories, theological virtues and human virtues. So theological virtues, we call them theological because they specifically relate to my relationship with God. So there are three theological virtues and they are faith, hope, and love. And the Catechism in point 1813 says that these theological virtues are the foundation of Christian moral activity. And that makes sense, right? That like, if we want to be good Christians, we first have to be good Christians. Like we have to have a personal relationship with Christ if we want to live a good Christian life. And those three theological virtues are central to our relationship with Christ. So let's go through each one of them. So faith. Faith refers to our belief in God. And we've gone over this virtue in depth in the very, very first episode. But one thing that's important to kind of remind ourselves of here is that faith isn't just a kind of passive intellectual acceptance of a set of facts, right? Faith is an active personal relationship. It's us saying, I personally accept God as my God. And then that acceptance leads to action. So if I'm someone who gets around saying, oh yeah, yeah, I believe in God, but I never actually pray and I never actually try to follow the 10 commandments, then my faith is probably a little bit questionable. Okay. And then hope, hope, like sometimes we can think that hope is like making a wish. It's like, we're saying, oh, I really hope that I get to heaven. Fingers crossed, right? No, hope has more confidence than that. The catechism describes hope as the theological virtue by which we desire the kingdom of heaven and eternal life as our happiness 
placing our trust in Christ's promises and relying not on our own strength, but on the help of the grace of the Holy Spirit. So that's a bit long-winded, but basically what it's saying is that hope is that kind of total trust that God is going to get me to heaven and the desire to go to heaven. So there's this documentary. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called The Rescue. If you haven't watched it, you totally should because it's really amazing. Um, And it's about, you know, those 12 boys in Thailand who got stuck in a cave and then they had to be rescued and it was all like very dramatic. So it's about that rescue. And it shows you how the boys were stuck in the cave and they had to be taken out by these cave divers. And the boys had absolutely no expertise in cave diving. Like if they had tried to do it on their own, they definitely would have died. So because they had no expertise of their own, all they could do was like set their sights on freedom, like just hold on to that determination to survive and then completely surrender themselves to these rescuers. They had to totally trust that the guys that were going to carry them through the cave knew what they were doing. So that's kind of like the virtue of hope in us. We don't have the capacity to get ourselves to heaven. All we can do is set our sights on that sort of light at the end of the tunnel and then hold on to God and trust that if we remain close to him and remain open to him, he will get us to heaven. And then finally, charity or love. Now, love, according to the catechism, is superior to all the virtues. Basically, it is impossible for us to ever do anything truly good ever without love. Love is like the petrol that makes the car work. And it doesn't matter how fancy and amazing the car is, without the petrol, it's kind of useless. It's like St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of humans and angels, but I do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, one really important thing to remember about the theological virtues is that we cannot acquire them through our own effort. So I can't will myself into faith or hope or love of God. And actually, this can be quite a comforting thing, especially if I'm sort of struggling to believe in God or struggling to love him. You know, you can kind of get caught up in thinking, oh, my gosh, there's something wrong with me. I'm not trying hard enough, etc. Well, no, in the same way that I can't will my body into life, I can't will my soul into life. Like I can't put faith, hope and love in my own soul. That is something that actually only God can do. All I can do is ask for those virtues and be open to them. Now, by contrast, the human virtues, which are pretty much all of the other virtues, they can actually be acquired and perfected through our own effort. Now, obviously, we mean by that effort with the help of grace. So we can return to that image that we've used before of riding an electric bike. God provides the motor and that gets the bike going, but also I have to pedal the bike in order for it to work. So that motor of the moral life as Christians is the Holy Spirit. The Catechism in Point 1830 tells us how the Holy Spirit gives us certain gifts and dispositions that help us to then grow in virtue. So it names seven specific gifts of the Holy Spirit that are infused in every Christian who has been baptized and also in confirmation. So these gifts are wisdom, understanding, counsel, fortitude, knowledge, piety, and fear of the Lord. So I think we said this in the episode on confirmation that these seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, it's like, you know, when Frodo goes on his mission and he's given his chain mail and his sword, right? These are the tools that we need that will make our journey to heaven possible. Now, we don't have time to unpack each of these gifts of the Holy Spirit in this episode, but what I will do is I'll put a link to a couple of books um, and resources in, in the show notes in case this is something that you want to think about more. 
Now, you, like me, might have heard that list of the gifts of the Holy Spirit and thought, hmm, okay, well, if the Holy Spirit has supposedly infused me with, like, wisdom, for instance, why is it that I seem to have no wisdom whatsoever and I'm constantly making extremely dumb decisions? Okay, well... This is where we need to remember that we also need to do the work of pedaling the bike. Just because the Holy Spirit has infused us with these gifts in in baptism and confirmation doesn't mean that we automatically are totally wise people. We also then need to make use of those gifts and use them to build up virtue. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are dispositions towards the good, right? They make it easier for us to develop those virtues. They don't automatically make us virtuous. So... The human virtues are virtues that over time, if we practice them, we will get better at them. It's like a muscle. The more I use it, the stronger I get. So there are like a bajillion different virtues, like gratitude and cheerfulness and generosity and humility and patience. Like we could go on for hours and we don't have time to talk about every single virtue. But what we can do is briefly cover the four cardinal virtues. So you know how the seven capital sins are like those fundamental sins that sit under everything? The four cardinal virtues are like those bedrock virtues that sit under every other good thing that we do. And those are prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. So prudence. Thomas Aquinas says that prudence is right reason in action. And I don't know about you, but sometimes you hear the word prudence and it can sound like kind of a boring virtue. Like we might picture someone who's a bit of a plain Jane who never really takes any risks and wears a lot of gray and never spends any money or does anything fun because she's really prudent. It's kind of like Marilla from Anne of Green Gables. I mean, Marilla is great, don't get me wrong, but she's not like the most exciting person in the world. However, that is a completely wrong assessment of what prudence is. Catechism in point 1806 says that prudence is not to be confused with timidity or fear. It is called the charioteer of the virtues. It guides the judgment of conscience. I love that image of a charioteer. Like I'm picturing a Roman soldier kind of confidently riding a chariot into battle. So a prudent person is someone who thinks deeply, learns from their mistakes, asks for advice, prays about things, and then backed up by all of that, they're able to confidently make informed decisions with a clear conscience. And that's really awesome, right? Like we should all want to be able to do that. Makes me think of someone like, you know, Mr. Knightley from Emma, someone who is so mature and considerate that you know that you can always trust his judgment because he's definitely, you know, thought about this thing deeply that he's about to say. Okay, so that's prudence. And then justice. Again, when we hear justice, we might think of something a bit negative, like a kind of rigidity, like people who are just obsessed with the rules and what's fair and what's right or wrong, etc. But that's not justice. The Catechism in point 1807 says that justice disposes one to respect the rights of each and to establish harmony and equity with regard to persons and to the common good. So justice is kind of like Atticus in To Kill a Mockingbird, right? Someone who, yes, they do what is right and they care about right and wrong and and they respect the rights of every person, but not out of this rigid sense of following the rules, but out of love for the truth and for others. And maybe I'm not in a kind of Atticus situation where I'm like defending someone who's been unjustly accused or whatever. My life might not be that dramatic, but at the same time, justice is a part of everyone's everyday life. We need to exercise justice in the way that we treat other people and give people what is their due and, you know, do my work well, etc. Or even things like helping out with the dishes at home or refraining from gossip. Like those are all situations where we can grow in the virtue of justice. Okay. And then fortitude. 
The Catechism describes fortitude as firmness in difficulties and constancy in the pursuit of good. So we might think of those people who are able to do really hard things, even when they're under a lot of external pressure to give up. So one example might be like Joan of Arc or St. Thomas More, right? People who stood by the truth, even when they were threatened with death. I mean, obviously, we are probably not going to be called to be burned at the stake for our opinions, but... There are many other situations in life that require that strength and courage of us. So even things like getting out of bed in the morning when it's cold outside and I want to stay in bed or standing up to my friends when they're pressuring me to to agree with something that I don't agree with or following through with a commitment that I made that turns out to be kind of difficult. And to be honest, I think this virtue in particular, fortitude, is one that at least my generation in the Western world, we kind of suck at living in many ways because we have grown up in a world where we don't ever have to suffer. Like if I'm cold, I just put on the heater or if I'm warm, I put on the air conditioner. And if I'm hungry, I just go to the fridge and everything that I need is there. I never really have to suffer. And then it comes to like the big sufferings of life that I can't escape. Like, you know, when you have kids or you get married and a relationship gets hard or, you know, your job gets difficult or whatever, and you just nup out of it because you can't cope. So this is one of the reasons why mortification is such an important thing for us to practice. So mortification refers to like doing little things that are a little bit difficult and training our bodies to withstand suffering. And even on a secular level, I think that this makes a lot of sense, that it's something that we actually need to manually introduce into our lives because we don't come across it incidentally so much anymore. And we need to be able to prepare ourselves to, you know, withstand real suffering when it happens as it inevitably will. So mortification might look like, you know, not putting milk in my coffee in the morning or turning off my phone at 9 p.m. or like whatever it is, little things that are a little bit uncomfortable and not terrible. That's not like we're like going to extreme measures, but we're just doing those things to train our bodies so that we don't end up becoming, you know, slaves to our own desires and instincts. And then temperance. Temperance is the virtue that moderates the attraction of pleasures and provides balance in the use of created goods. So in other words, temperance is self-control, that capacity to say no to yourself. And I tell you what, of all of the human virtues, I reckon temperance is pretty much the one that is the most cool. <laughs> like, you know, when you're at a party and there's that one person who like everyone around them is just getting totally smashed. And this one person just has two drinks. And then they're like, yeah, I'm done now. And the people around them are trying to encourage them to have something else. And they're like, no, no, I've had enough. Like, that's so cool. Like when I was at uni, I just didn't drink alcohol at all because I knew that I couldn't be that person. I knew that I wouldn't be able to stop at just one. People who can have a little bit and then stop and like stay in control of themselves. That is such an attractive virtue. It radiates a kind of like Paul Newman level of cool. (laughs) And this is the thing with all the virtues, right? Like they're not just these dead, boring, lame tasks that we have to do. They are attractive. They're so cool. And they also make us really, really happy. They turn us into happy people. Like imagine being a mashup of Mr. Knightley, Atticus Finch, Joan of Arc and Paul Newman. (laughs) Like, okay, maybe that's like a horrifying image, but you know what I mean, right? Like virtue is attractive. We should want to be virtuous people. The catechism talks about the fruits of the Holy Spirit. So those are basically like the consequences of living virtue. And these characteristics, these fruits of the Holy Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, generosity, 
gentleness, faithfulness, modesty, self-control, and chastity. Imagine if someone could list off all of those qualities and apply them to you. Like that's the kind of person we want to be. That would be like being like Superman or not even Superman. It would be like resembling Jesus, right? Like that's what we are aiming for. We, we want to become just like Christ. We want to be saints and we should never settle for anything less than that. Okay. So that's all we have time for today on sin and virtue. In the next episode, we're going to talk about morality on a kind of societal level. What does it mean to be a person as part of a society? Okay. I can't wait for that. I hope that you have a fantastic fortnight and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.